Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. So glad to have you all with us for Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We are winding down. We are just one day away now from the end of 2019. And I will ask the panel if they agree with me, but from my point of view, the single most or one of the most tumultuous years we've seen in American politics and in politics here in Georgia, for that matter. And um, we're going to talk about what we all have uh, voted on as uh, some of the top stories in the news. It's a list of the top 10, and um, we're going to talk about the 10 that we all picked. But then I'm going to give our panel a chance to weigh in on a couple they think should have been in this list in art. With that said, Jim Galloway, lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is here. You read him on Wednesdays and Sundays in the AJC. And, of course, he oversees the Political Insider blog. This is an all-AGC panel, so everyone in this studio contributes to the Political Insider. And none of them reports to me. <laughs> they can say anything they want. Uh, we also have uh, with us uh, Greg Bluestein. Uh, he, of course, is uh, writing on politics. He's the probably... The guy who spends more time covering Georgia politics than anybody else at the paper. Hi, Greg. How's it going? This year went by really fast. Yeah, it was incredibly fast. Um, Tia Mitchell, who is uh, now uh, the Washington correspondent hey. for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hi, Tia. Good to see you. Hey. You are in the middle of one of the most exciting stories a reporter could want to cover. What a time to have headed up to Washington. Yeah, it's, it's really exciting, really fast-paced, and I'm glad to you know, be in the new role. Yeah, and we're glad you're here on Political Rewind, too. And next to you is Tamar Hallerman, who uh, was the Washington reporter for the AJC. You're now back in Atlanta, where you're going to be, you're going to get to cherry-pick the stories (laughs) that really you want to dig into a little more deeply, isn't it? It's exciting. Yeah, Yeah, I, I, uh, you know, the impeachment, (laughs) I'm, I'm sad and I'm happy to not be a part of it. I feel like I'm you know, dunking Tia into the deep end a little bit, but uh, we'll be there to help her. All right. <laughs> I covered the Clinton impeachment, and I say more power to you, Tia. I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad to not be up there for this. All right. We're going to kind of run through uh, the stories that um, we think belong in a list of the top stories of the year. Um, the, the one, and we're going to do it from in, in order from the, down to the most important story. Uh, the first story, uh, Jim, let me start with you, is um, Gerald, it's a civil rights story. <laughs> Gerald Bostock was a Clayton County man who believed that he was fired by the county uh, because he's gay. He believed it was a case of discrimination against uh, uh, his uh, sexuality. And he got that case all the way to the Supreme Court where it was heard this year. Right. And it's, it's, a, it's a very important question on, on whether sex... On, on the meaning of sex, really, on whether uh, on whether sex is when 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 Congress passed uh, this anti-discrimination law, I, th- I believe in the late '60s, Civil Rights Act in '64. Right. 
Right. I mean, was it? Did they when they meant sex? Did they did they mean just your 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 chromosome count, or did they mean mean your sexual orientation? Yeah. You know, Tamar, you were in the uh, Supreme Court when this case was argued, so I think Jim set you up to talk a little more about it. That's right. Gender discrimination on the basis of gender was outlawed right by the 1964 Civil Rights Act, but. General Bostic uh, makes the point that uh, your the, the sex your if you're homosexual you should be protected as well. Exactly, and and his lawyers. This is one of three cases that were bundled together, um, and, and their argument was essentially that that um, sexual orientation is, is an extension of gender when it comes to protections in the the Constitution. They were arguing that that people who were getting discriminated against in the the workplace. You know, the employers are saying your sexual identity is, um, you know, if you're a man, you should be married to a woman. That's a, that's a stereotype. And the Supreme Court has already outlawed or, you know, has ruled in a 1989 or 1990 case that uh, that discriminating against somebody based on stereotypes. It, you know, there was a woman who was dressing, you know, in a more masculine way who, who got fired or wasn't getting um, promoted. They're arguing that was discrimination. So his lawyers were saying this is just an extension of that. And it was interesting to hear the justices, because on the one hand, you know, we were watching all the conservative justices, including the two new ones, um, and hear what they had to say. It's a very, um, his lawyers were arguing it was a very literal interpretation of the Constitution. And so these are, these are uh, textualists, as it's called. They're, they're uh, uh, disciples of Antonin Scalia, who, who uh, had a very literal interpretation of the Constitution. So the lawyers were arguing, hey, just extend it to sexual orientation. It'll be interesting to see where they land. Yeah, it's important because it is an expansion once again. It is opening a new frontier in what this country believes deserves to be protected. How do we look at civil rights and uh, in, in, in American law? And I think it worries some conservatives because they feel like every time, you know, a new horizon is extended, then someone else comes in. You know, conservatives already have talked about sexual orientation, but now there's so much conversation about what gender identity, which is different than birth gender. And so they're so concerned about, you know, what they say is opening that Pandora's box. And I think that's where a lot of the pushback comes from. And you saw Neil Gorsuch, one of uh, President Trump's nominees for the Supreme Court, was kind of wrestling with that during oral arguments. He he mentioned it could be very disruptive to the cultural fabric of America. He worried a lot about locker rooms, about sports uniforms and stuff. If you were going to introduce this one part of the law, what it would mean going down the line. And he and he was nervous. He used the term slippery slope. All right. And we obviously will not hear an outcome of this until the end of the probably session, probably June. in June. Okay. Um, uh, Greg Lucian, let me bring you in on, on our next, uh, the next story on our list. We've got two vacant seats in Congress coming up in 2020. We've known for quite a while that Rob Woodall, the Republican up in the 7th District, was planning on making this his last term. And of course, that's uh, sparked a great battle for uh, for that seat, both among the many Republicans who've uh, uh, gotten into that race and, of course, for the Democrats. But we add to that Tom Graves in the 14th. No one, I don't think, was anticipating that 
that Republican member of Congress would also decide to call the day. So a big story this year has been people deciding not to come back to Congress. And they are among two of more than 20 Republican congressmen who are deciding not to stand for election next year. Very different districts. In the 7th, Rob Woodall's district was the home to the tightest House election in the entire nation in 2018. The uh, the fourteenth district, Tom Graves' district, is one of the most conservative districts, not only in Georgia but all of the Eastern Seaboard. It's a district that Trump won overwhelmingly. That Graves won really without a fight. So you've got a really swing district with more than a dozen candidates in the 7th district, and then we're still seeing the race for the 14th evolve, but expect a very, very conservative candidate emerging from that district. Yeah, and just a, a bit of history. Graves kind of jumped up uh, with with uh, at the very, very beginning of the Tea Party mm-hmm. movement. Uh, he was kind of, he was a, he was in the State House, mm-hmm. and he very quickly beca- became a, a a darling of 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 those forces, and that's how he got into the House. So it's, it's kind of a it's kind of the end uh, bookends here, uh, the beginning and now the end of the Tea Party movement, I think. Um, but we don't necessarily think, um, uh, Tamar, that uh, – I mean, certainly Rob Woodall had ex- given some th- – we'd gotten some signs that he was kind of over it. He was tired of raising money. He was not very good at it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Anyway, he didn't seem to have much of a fight left in him. So it's hard to tell how much his decision had anything to do – with just his individual preferences. And I guess the same applies for for Graves as well, except this all happens in the midst of massive defections among incumbents across the country. You don't want to stand for re-election next year. Yeah, it says a lot about what Republicans think about their party's likelihood of retaking the House in 2020. It's not a good sign. And, and while all of them are voting in lockstep with Trump all the time on the Hill, it shows that that maybe they don't think him leaving the ticket will lead to their party becoming the majority. Maybe not. And and Woodall and Graves retired for, for very different reasons. Woodall really hated the negative campaigning that's become the norm uh, of congressional campaigns right now. And, and, you know, he lost a parent recently. There were some personal reasons. And for Graves, it was a little bit dis- uh, different. He could have stayed in that seat probably for the rest of his life if he wanted. I think he just saw, you know, he, he didn't get the chairmanship for the committee he wanted, and maybe there, there wasn't as much room for upward advancement as he would have wanted. Do we think, and let me start with you on this, Tia, is there, w- whether or not they support the president, stand with him um, publicly, do we think that any of these Republican 20-some, Jim Galloway said, I think, 21, 22, before we went on the air, um, do we think any of this has to do with just plain Trump fatigue? We, we don't know for a fact, but it's worth considering. I think it's worth considering, you know, when you're a Republican in Congress, you are expected to vote party line. You're expected to support the president. And I wonder if some of these individuals, not necessarily maybe not the Tom Graves of the world, but some of the more moderate Republicans, some that represent a more moderate district, maybe they're concerned about having to toe that line all the time and feeling like they are sometimes having to bypass their, you know, that's politics, you know, any party. But right now, with Trump being such a polarizing leader of a party, it does cause people to have to kind of sometimes sacrifice their own wants for the party 
greater party good. All right. Yeah. And 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 I don't know if Graves fits into this category, but you have a whole coterie of 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 House members who sleep on their couches in the in yeah. their office yeah. and then go home for the for, for the weekend. Uh, one thing to note about Graves that and and it just kind of stru- struck home uh, struck home when 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 uh, I, I first heard the news. It, as young as he is, he is the longest-serving yeah. member of the U.S. House from Georgia. Republican, Republican, yeah. And and that that goes to that goes to. I mean, the Congress is a place where you you gain clout according to your seniority. Yeah, uh, it works. It works that way in the House. It works that way, especially in the Senate. The longer you stay, the more powerful you become. And right now, we're kind of we're, we are in a place where we haven't uh, where we don't have that much clout. And once Tom Graves and Johnny Isaacson retire, the longest-serving Republican from Georgia will be Austin. Scott, who was elected in 2010. That is really an interesting, uh, the, the longest serving Republican, Republican. you Republican. said. Our Democrats are quite sure. senior. Right. We've got some real senior Democrats. Greg, it occurs to me that we could be sitting here a year from now, and it is possible that one of the stories we will put in our list of top stories of the year could be the possibility that the 7th District that Rob Woodall is giving up the seat in uh, flips to a Democrat. That's certainly in that district's going to be in play. Yeah, it was the, the divide was about 400 or so votes, 500 or so votes in 2018. And if you talk to many national strategists from both parties in 2018, they thought that that was the district that would flip and that Handel, Karen Handel and neighboring six, the 6th district would hold the seat. Obviously, Karen Handel loses. Lucy McBath wins an upset victory there. And Carolyn Bordeaux the, the runner-up in the 7th in the District contest um, narrowly loses but is now fa- uh, waging a comeback bid along with a, a half a dozen other Democrats, some who have just recently moved in the district and some who don't live in the district. All right. We're going to watch how that plays out. It's going to be an interesting uh, year, of, especially in the suburban districts, uh, as you pointed out, Greg, not so much in the 14th, where we have no reason to think that we, it won't uh, remain in the Republican Party. Stranger things have happened. Well, but I that one <laughs> Um, a story that was uh, got an enormous amount of attention, especially in the second half of 2019, was uh, Jim Galloway, the concerns about a plant uh, in uh, Smyrna called Sterogenics, a <clears throat> medical sterilization, a, pl- a plant that um, sterilized medical instruments and was found to be emitting a toxic cancer-causing ethylene oxide. Ethylene oxide. And... Um, it, it felt, I mean, there were local people up there who identified that danger, wanted to act on it immediately. But part of the story was that it took the state a while to catch up to the concerns. Well, it's, what, what's, what's very interesting, first of all, you have to remember that this occurred in this really hot real estate market of, of, of Cobb County because people are moving closer into, into, into downtown real estate Real estate prices are, are 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 going up. The footprint for this this plant even incorporated uh, West Pace's Ferry, yeah. uh, and the and, governor's and, mansion, and the, and the governor's <laughs> mansion. What, what's interesting? There are two things that uh, uh, that, that are interesting here. Is number one, the initial actions uh, dealing with the sterogenics plant plant occurred at the local. And at the, at the municipal and the county levels, and 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 with state uh, state lawmakers like Eric Allen and and Jen Jordan, okay, and then uh, Governor Brian Kemp started to weigh in, 
he felt betrayed by this by the stereogenics uh, uh, plant and has come down very, very hard on them. Felt betrayed uh, because, Greg, stereogenics misreported the extent of the emissions, uh, and and they had, they had told him that there, the the releases were not as dramatic as they turned out yeah, to be. In a private meeting with the governor, yeah. um, which really ticked him off and and, and, and his staff and upset them, um, and so that re- that resulted in legal action. That resulted in executive orders. Uh, it's been fascinating because Sterogenics is not the only plant involved. B D Bard over in Covington and the political. Uh, responses to those have been almost night and day. Um, uh, Sterogenics is an East Cobb, mostly Democratic represented area where you saw Jen Jordan and Eric Allen and other Democrats who represent those areas come out forcefully. B.D. Bard in Covington, Georgia, um, is uh, was somewhat more of a Republican area, but you also saw Democrats and Republicans who represent that Newton County uh, facility kind of be a lot more measured in their response. Well, they, they're things. a big employer out there, they too, the which, number which one made number a two. big difference. But the state, by the time BD came along, was more in a position where they were more willing to exert their own force yeah. there than they had initially with sterogenics. One other quick thing about this story, Tia, is it's fascinating to me that a big environmental issue like this uh, becomes big news at the same time that uh, you could say one of the big stories out of Washington in the last year has been deregulation of so many of the protections that had been put in place by the Obama administration and previous administrations in terms of the environment EPA regulations. Yeah, I mean, I'm new to Washington, yeah. so I'm learning a lot about that. And I recently there has been some correspondence from the White House that they're trying to drum up like, we're we're going to highlight some of the problematic places and i think they're try they're aware of the perception that the trump administration has allowed some of these things to happen and they're trying to at least portray yeah. that they're worried about it tomorrow yeah i mean you have some republicans who in the past during the obama administration were advocating for epa to be eliminated entirely or dramatically scaled back who are now very loud exactly one, yeah. and who are now asking epa to step in or, or to have more of a role and it puts them in a kind of an awkward position all right let's um, move on because we're, we're going to follow sterogenics and bd uh, over the next uh, months ahead to see exactly how all of that plays out another story we're going to be watching playing out greg bluestein and it's right square in your beat is uh, Governor Kemp, who kind of surprised a lot of people when he announced pretty dramatic budget cuts, not just for the next fiscal year, but for the second half of the current fiscal year budget, 4% in this year, 6% in next year. And uh, it's, I'm not sure the Kemp administration, did they recognize what a out you know, an outpouring of anger and concern it was going to lead to? I think what was complicated this was the economy at the time he announced it was still the, the revenues were growing. They were still getting 2%, 3%, not huge growth, but 2 or 3% growth. Um, now, you know, months later, there are now more signs of a souring economy, if, if not maybe a recession to come in 2020. I don't want to jinx us. Um, but there are a lot of uh, House members who were upset at the process and hopeful that um, you know, they wanted more input earlier on rather than here's the blueprint. You, you do this and, and, and then cut the, cut, cut the you know, enormous 10 percent out of the budget. Um, what this means is it could mean, according to a public records request that we have right now, 1,100 or so jobs lost. 
um, vacancies not filled or, or just uh, jobs cut over the next two years, um, it would re- reduce government services and, and cause other um, cutbacks. I think you just said a key thing. Uh, and Jim, I'll pick up on it with you. There's very usually very little um, sympathy among the public when for government workers whether they have their jobs or not. I mean that's I think standard that people don't get terribly concerned. But when you start talking about cutting services, when people recognize that losing some employees might say make it harder to get your driver's license if you have to stand in longer line, that sort of thing does resonate. That does resonate. And and one thing uh, we've 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 found just kind of through uh, again through through record hunts and 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 James Salzer over with the AJC uh, is. That, for instance, uh, the prison system is is taking a yeah. huge uh, a huge amount of those cuts uh, because they're out of sight, out of mind. Uh, one place that probably won't get cut are uh, are are the are teachers, the teacher salaries. Uh, uh, Kemp has promised what was it? What was the raise? Uh, Five thousand dollar a year raise. Uh, with his, and he with got, his yeah, he got or three so of it already. Yeah. So yeah. the question is, does he go for that even even with uh, even as he cuts uh, state government by ten percent? You know, it's interesting, Tamar. The, 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 these two are right. I mean, the we had David Ralston in here not long ago, and Ralston made it quite clear that uh, he was he's feeling a little grumpy about the yeah. fact, about these cutbacks and the fact that he's not been more involved. And it does look like there's going to be a bit of tension. Uh, uh, between certainly the House leadership and the governor moving forward. At the same time, I've been noticing the uh, the governor's office putting out these news releases about the decreased revenues. And I have to say, uh, it happens to fit their scenario right now that we really do have to be careful. I don't think I've ever seen a governor's office that seemed to, in an odd sort of way, trumpet the fact that revenues are down. But they need to make the point. Totally. But these lawmakers, think about it. They're on the front lines. Whenever any of their constituents are having issues with state services, they're going to, to these lawmakers to complain. So it puts them in an awkward position, right? They want to support the governor. But, you know, if their constituents aren't getting helped, that, that's hard. All right. I, we're going to have to take a break. I do always, when we talk about the state budget, remind people that George Public Broadcasting is a state agency. But the programs that we do, the salaries of those of us who work on those programs, they don't come from state funding. They are paid out of foundations that support us and uh, contributions from our listeners as well, just in, uh, in because we need to be transparent about that. Let's do this. We got a bunch more stories to talk about, but let's get a break out of the way. We'll be right back with more on Political Rewind. We're counting down the top stories of 2019 on this special edition of Political Rewind. Uh, Jim and Tamar, we have the AJC political team here in the studio to talk with us about this, which is really a pleasure for me. Um, you, Jim, you and Tamar, you really double teamed a big story. Uh, you from Washington, Tamar, you from right here, Jim. And that's farmers in rural Georgia, obviously hurt by the tariffs and then hurt by the fact that it took forever to get approval for emergency relief, which but is it? Is it? Has it all been delivered by as we come to the end of 2019? Money is just starting to trickle out from from the agriculture department, and there are a ton of other federal agencies, something like two dozen, that are going to have a hand. So we're just starting to see the money more than a year later. This, this is damage that was done in October 2017. Yeah, yeah, and and, and 2018. What, 2018. Okay. Uh, 
All right, so not quite that bad. Uh, we we've got a theme building here, Bill. We've got we've got. Uh, uh, it became very clear with the 2016 presidential election that rural Georgia was key to, to Donald Trump's victory, and it will probably be key to his survival in 2020. And so you've got this, you've, you've got this, this great need among farmers for support, and you do have a good bit of catering. Uh, to that to that sector uh, through people like 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 Sonny Perdue, the, the the former governor and and agricultural secretary, uh, and and tomorrow's right on top of that. Yeah, and and you saw Trump on the one hand realizing how key farmers are and were and are to his success. But on the other hand, you, you saw this fight for aid money following Hurricane Michael that got tied to this extraneous fight over Puerto Rico. And it made it super tough. There, there was this big juggling act. And for a, for a while, you were wondering whether farmers lost patience with the administration. You, you had Austin Scott, Republican out of Tifton, really he really walked point and yeah. and was calling the White House to account on on a number of occasions on this. And you had all these Republican leaders in Georgia in these really tough spots because these are counties that went overwhelmingly for President Trump and for Governor Kemp. You had a Georgian who is head of the Agricultural Department. You had Governor Kemp. You had a, a Republican-dominated Georgia delegation. You had a Republican-controlled Senate, a Republican-controlled White House, a bunch of re- Georgians in very prominent positions, and yet they still took all this time it took months and months of negotiations to muscle this through. And, and the human side of this story, Tia, is that um, farms, f- farmers are hurting badly. We know that the suicide rate among farmers is up uh, in, in many parts of the state. I think here in Georgia, as well as other uh, rural st- states that have, have a big dependency on agriculture. And, um, and, 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 it, and the, the ironic thing about all of this is, as Jim Galloway points out, this is uh, President Trump's voter base and Brian Kemp's voter base as well. Right. And it's and that's not just the Hurricane Michael effects. It's also the effects of the trade wars going on and tariffs and things like that, that farmers nationwide are struggling, but particularly in South Georgia. And I do think it's interesting <laughs> that this is a Republican base. This is a very conservative part of the nation. And we're not seeing that that's affecting their support um, so far of Republican leaders or President Trump. We've, they're worried about it. They're concerned. But it's not like they're saying we don't want to vote for President Trump anymore. It hasn't got to that. Yet. We should point out. Oh, go ahead. Jim. No, what I was saying also also uh, a big factor in this is the collapse of the health care system in rural Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's been that's that that was a focus of 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 the legislature in this past year. It'll it'll be a, a focus of the legislature again come January. Well, another story that did not make it to our list, but certainly could have, and I, and I think some of you would put it on that list is um, um, Medicaid expansion and the fact that the governor has decided on a very limited expansion. Uh, so we're not going to see the kind of help that some people in rural parts of the state, particularly, are hoping for. Really, the last note on the farm story tomorrow, uh, overseeing all of this. Uh, our own former governor, Sonny Perdue, as the uh, head of the Department of Agriculture, Secretary of Agriculture. And you've seen him be deployed over the last couple of years as especially the trade war with China has been ramped up. His his job has been salesman number one on guys hang in there. The term he uses when he's on the road, I know you guys are patriots. Please hang in there. It'll be worth it at the end of the day. Um, let's move on. Uh, uh, Greg Bluestein, another story that you spent an enormous amount of time looking at, along with Mark Nisi, really, you both kind of covered this, is um, election concerns. Not only voter integrity questions, which Stacey Abrams and her organizations, plural, 
have uh, been uh, raising ever since 2018, uh, but also the state finally deciding on a new voting system, uh, which um, got to be in place by March 24th, the presidential primary. And the question is, are they going to make make it happen? Yeah, and it was a big legislative fight in 2019 after a lot of voting right and ballot access issues marred the 2018 vote. And it wasn't just about the elections machines. It was about provisional and, and absentee ballot countings. It was about the closure or the mo- removal of poll- polling sites within 90 days of the election. So you saw um, a comprehensive overhaul that critics said did not go far enough, but that had some bipartisan support to at least put in these new voting machines and also restrict the government and restrict local county of, uh, elections officials from making certain changes um, uh, too close to an election. So you saw the, the, the beginnings of a sort of compromise over this, but this issue is going to also probably be one of the top 10 stories in 2020 as well because we've got a rollout of a new voting machines. Um, you're right. Uh, there were some test runs during the mayoral elections of, of 2019 that didn't go flawlessly. Yeah. And so March 24th is right around the corner. Yeah, I, I, I think, uh, uh, Jim, that there's going to be, uh, I mean, the pressure on the Secretary of State to get these machines out there is intense. But I think we can already sort of gird ourselves for hearing about the kind of problems that you would expect will come up when new technology is in place. But it's of so much more significance when you're talking about an election. And what what one close election one, too. Yes, yes. And, and and one thing everybody will be watching in, in in the state capitol at least is this fair fight action lawsuit that was filed in the in the days after the 2018 election. And it's 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 a federal lawsuit. It's asking for a complete overhaul of Georgia's voting system, uh, and and what the Secretary of State is permitted to do and what it can't do, uh, and it that that comes to trial uh, late February, early March. All right, we're going to watch how that uh, uh, develops as well. And uh, you'll all out there get a chance to see how the new system goes when you walk into your polling place in uh, late March to vote in the presidential primary. Um, Tamara, there's a story that, you know, it's interesting. It it occurred to me as I was looking over the list that we put together, Tom and Sam helped on this, uh, that the one thing that's kind of missing as a line by itself is a new governor puts his stamp on the politics of Georgia, which is certainly what Brian Kemp has done in this first year. But it weaves in and out of all of what we're talking about. So here's what's interesting about that. The governor has been praised for the diversity of his appointment so far and in many offices. Um, he's uh, But he's also been under a lot of, you know, critical uh, observation for things like the next story on our list, which is his decision in the end to uh, support HB 481, the heartbeat abortion law. Yeah. And that was an issue where coming into the year, abortion wasn't so much on our radar I mean, we knew it could be coming with a new Republican government, but, but that was not kind of the top issue going into the year necessarily. And, and Jim and Greg would know better than me. Um, but but that's the issue that especially Democrats really are, are hoping to define not only Trump, but all Republicans running for office in 2020. They want to make it a top issue in, in for example, the seventh district where Renee Unterman is running. Yeah, that's really it, it's it's our abortion law. It's Louisiana. It's Alabama. Alabama. It's Kentucky. Kentucky, Kentucky right. It's, it's the South is replete this year with laws that virtually outlaw abortion. Well, when Governor Kemp was elected, he became the first Republican 
lifelong Republican because both Nathan Deal and Sonny Perdue were both Democrats who switched parties, but lifelong Republican elected to the state's top job since Reconstruction. And he did so on a very conservative platform. So we knew he was going to do something to, to sort of say the, you know, satisfy the base. We weren't sure it was going to be abortion. And really early on, if you look at how this level evolution kind of grew and evolved, it started as a, a trigger bill. It started as a bill that was kind of weak, you know, a little weaker that would said if Roe v. Wade was overturned, then Georgia would instantly outlaw abortion. Well, given that had uncertain prospects, a lot of um, anti-abortion activists were very upset with the governor and said, hey, you, you made all these promises on gun rights, religious liberty, on abortion, all these culturally conservative issues. What are you going to do about it? Yeah, it, it, Tia, the, the, it seemed to slip out of the governor's grasp. He wanted, as Greg points out, to slow it down to try not to do anything quite so dramatic, and he just lost control of that issue. Yeah, um, this is one of those virtue signaling bills, and it allows conservatives to say, look what we did and look how conservative we are, and then they know it's going to be tied up in the courts for months, years. Um, And I think for Governor Kemp, he couldn't say no once it got to his desk without losing credibility as this conservative candidate that he said he was when he was running for office. Um, Jim, weigh in on that, but also weigh in, if you don't mind, add to that the fact that we, if this has been the year in which Brian Kemp has put a stamp on our politics, he has been praised for some other aspects of what he's done. So go take All right, on both right. of those. Yes, yes, yes. He, he, he has made some, some, some judicial appointments, some administrative appointments that have won great favor with people who want to see more color within a, a, within a Republican administration and more, 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 uh, more women as well. Uh, I would say, Bill, uh, you talk about Governor Kemp uh, weaving in and out of all these stories that sure. we're talking about here. The other, the other factor I would say that is also weaving in and out are are the women in Metro Atlanta's northern suburbs? Absolutely, because this is this is this 481 is is going to be a very very big focus of, of Democrats as they try to really uh, we've got we've got 14, uh, 16 seats that the the House Democrats need to take control of of the state house. Uh, which would be a momentous thing if it happens in 2020. You know, more than likely they'll come close, but but the but the but women voters are key to that. Yeah, and Democrats flipped 11 seats in the state house in 2018, two in the state senate, um, and and you know they feel like even if they don't get the 16, if they can get close enough, and you have some Tea Party, con- you know, some some conservatives stay at home on uh, certain votes then they can get right there and really force some changes in the Georgia legislature. And about Kemp, you know, we, we did, we saw him deviate from even Nathan Deal, who was seen as more moderate on some big issues like Medicaid, uh, uh, Medicaid expansion, the waivers that the Nathan Deal never really put his political capital behind, as well as um, a limited or more uh, expansion of the medical marijuana program in Georgia as well that, that, that Governor Kemp signed into law. Um, so on one hand, he's doing things that even Nathan Deal wouldn't do. On the other hand, he is pushing for more conservative um, uh, measures like this anti-abortion heartbeat bill that probably Governor Deal, uh, he signed a 20-week abortion ban into law, but you know there, there's a lot of speculation about whether or not Governor Deal would even sub- supported something as stringent as this. Well, before we leave Governor Kemp, Tio, we shouldn't forget about another rather bold move that he made, and we're going to talk about this in more depth in a minute, but 
he actually defied President Trump when he decided on who he wanted to appoint to Johnny Isaacson's Senate seat. And I think even that one, it was like once, you know, politics is often a, you know, you have to, it's strategy and it's about, you know, showing your muscle and it's about the long game. And it became clear that if President Trump was able to, in a way, kind of force Governor Kemp's hand, when it was pretty clear Governor Governor Kemp was not going to pick Representative Collins, yeah. that became pretty clear. And so once President Trump leaned on him, it was like, do you do what the president says and let him kind of force you to change your mind? Or do you kind of stick up for yourself and show some independence, and that was going to have long-term effects one way or the other. Yeah, I mean, we're, and we are going to talk about that a little bit more, but um, it, so I think we, uh, uh, Tamar, do say uh, there aren't a lot of Republicans these days, office holders, who are willing to uh, to defy pu- uh, President Trump publicly. Sure, but it's different when you're governor versus one of 16 congressional delegation members or, yeah, you know, course. in the legislature. All right, uh, let's do this. We got a few more. We're counting down to our top 10. Let's take Take a break right now, and we'll come back with more on Political Rewind. We have an AJC panel in the House. We've got uh, Tamar Hallerman, Tia Mitchell, Greg Bluestein, Jim Galloway, who have been partners of ours on Political Rewind, some of you longer than others. But before we get back to our top 10 list, I just want to say very briefly that one of the things I'm so grateful for is that we have this opportunity to work with all of you on Political Rewind. You bring so much to our show, and I'm looking forward to a big 2020 with everybody. All right. Uh, Democrats came to Georgia for a presidential debate. It took them a while to tell us <laughs> where they were going to do it, Greg Bluestein. But finally, they uh, went down to Tyler Perry Studios and, uh, and had the debate. Some people would say it was a sign the Democrats see Georgia is in play. Is it? Was it just that? I think that's part of it, right? This is the first uh, major party dem- uh, debate that Georgia has hosted since 1990. Back 92. In, 92, I should say in the 90s I was thinking of. Uh, 92 when it was at the Carter Center. And um, it was a moment. It was one of those interesting, fun moments where you had all the presidential candidates collide in Georgia. You had a dozens of events that felt like dozens of events. It's probably about a dozen events that week uh, with presidential candidates paying attention in a way to Georgia they, they hadn't in past cycles. Um, we've seen attention. It's not like we're not getting attention, but we certainly don't expect the same attention that South Carolina or New Hampshire or Iowa get. Um, we've always had fundraising attention, but now, especially with last year's, with the 2018 election being so close between Stacey Abrams and, and Governor Kemp, Democrats see Georgia as an opportunity to flip for the first time since that 1992 election. Yeah. And what was interesting, well, for, uh, one name you left out, Greg, is, is Obama. Uh, he, 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 came, he flitted through town as, as well. But mm-hmm. what was interesting, of course, Bill, was, was the debate over where that, thing, the, 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 yeah. that, that event should be yeah. held. Uh, do you hold it in the northern suburbs where you're trying to gain ground? Uh, in the end, what they did was they picked South Atlanta, a very hardcore Democratic spot, uh, uh, the site of the old old uh, Fort, Fort Mac, and and in uh, Tyler Perry's studio, one of the great who has become one of the great black entrepreneurs in in the country, the only the only head African American head of his own studio. Yeah, and Tia, I think we know 
um, through kind of observations, reports that have filtered out that uh, the reason they ended up at Tyler Perry studio was that Atlanta mayor Keisha Bottoms really fought fiercely. They apparently were headed up there for City Springs, the Sandy Springs uh, uh, concert venue that Rusty Mayor Rusty Paul was pushing hard. And uh, the mayor fought fiercely to get it down here. Yeah, I think, again, Jim mentioned the cultural significance of Tyler Perry Studios. We know that African-American voters are, you know, the Democratic base. It's hard to get elected um, a Democrat anywhere without African-American voter support. And so I think, um, again, and we also know Mayor Bottoms, you know, making a case for the city of Atlanta proper. You know, it's one thing to come to the Atlanta metro area. It's another thing to come within the Atlanta city limits. And I think she wanted, you know, the the dateline on on the articles to say Atlanta specifically. You know, Tia, I'm sure there's, you know, right, let's go ahead and put this right in the middle of a base that's incredibly important to us. But I thought Galloway made an interesting point. This also was a way of saying, of celebrating one of America's greatest African-American entrepreneurs. So even separate from what the voter base is like, it was a chance for the Democratic Party to speak about, you know, the potential that African-Americans can have in this country to be a success in in, in their work. Yeah, and there was an, a lot of opportunities at the debate, not just a shout out Tyler Perry, but the debate was held in Oprah Winfrey Studios yeah. and, and John Lewis was sitting in the audience, you know, and, and again, Atlanta's the cradle of the civil rights movement. And so all of that was mentioned on debate night. One thing, one thing, uh, Bill, I think that that is kind of a secondary result is, is we've already talked about uh, HB 481 and the heartbeat bill. And in the early stages of debate over that public debate over that bill, there was a there was a, a a West Coast call for a boycott of the Georgia film industry, which is which is just getting on its legs. Mm-hmm. And I think by by pointing to to Tyler Perry's studio, uh, I think in this in when this when, when the debate over abortion rears its head again in 2020, I don't think you're going to see the Georgia film industry held hostage. This time, I think I think uh, I think Democrats Democrats understand how valuable the symbolism of of people like Tyler Perry is. All right. You want to weigh in tomorrow? You all set to move on to number two? (laughs) I'm ready for number two. All right. Well, I'm going to I'm glad because I'm going to give you number two first and then uh, uh, hand it off to your replacement. Number two, impeachment. I mean, the most important national story that we've seen in many, many years here, the last impeachment, 1998, Bill Clinton. Um, This is only the third time that we've had an impeachment of a president here. Uh, And to layer on top of that, we've had some significant uh, uh, Georgians in in the mix there. Um, Most important, of course, being Doug Collins, the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee, who has played an enormous role in defending the president. And it was one of the big stories we've been watching all year because there's been talk about it going on for ages, especially after uh, Democrats took over the House. And and I was closely tracking the five Georgia Democrats serving in the House, and none of them were really joining in when we saw members 
like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez really kind of building the case for that. And as we saw, pretty much all five of them kind of held hands and jumped together. There was a momentous day earlier this fall where we saw John Lewis take to the, the well of the House to talk about how he saw this was a moral imperative to defend the Constitution. And um, all of them are in it. All five Democrats support it now. They, they followed along with Nancy Pelosi, who kind of gave them cover to support it and uh, moving full steam ahead. Tia, one of the people you're going to watch, I would imagine, uh, very closely in the months ahead is, is going to be Lucy McBath. Um, we didn't know for a while whether or not she was going to support impeachment. She's in a swing district up there in the 6th. Um, and yet she's landed with both feet saying, yes, I support the impeachment of the president and, and voted for it in the judiciary, voted for the articles in the judiciary committee. Yes, her statements have been very direct, very clear that she um, supports impeaching the president. You know, it took her a while. She was um, restrained, to say the least. Um, and and that came because she's very cautious and she is going to be running a competitive race next year. Um, and, and her team was concerned that, you know, she was kind of getting getting it from both sides because on one point her opponents were saying, look at her just jumping in on impeachment. They don't know all the facts. They just hate the president. And they want to impeach him. But then when she was restrained, they said, oh, Lucy McBath is hiding, you know, hiding from us and won't say where she stands. And and she's been very clear. And she does talk about her son, Jordan, and being a mom and how she feels like a moral imperative to stand up and do the right thing and and vote for a more perfect union in a way um, by voting to impeach President Trump. It, is this the this is really the only race? Check me if I'm wrong about this, either of you, uh, Jim or Greg. This is really the only race that is going to be heaven where your decision on impeachment is going to have a big impact on whether you get elected or not. Most of the Republican seats are safe. Most of the Democratic seats are safe. This is the one race where it's going to matter the most. I guess the Senate race is hard to tell there, though. Yeah, I mean, you've already seen Kelly Loeffler come out yeah. in her introductory speech saying that she thinks impeachment's a circus. And in the 7th District, you saw Carolyn Bordeaux and other top Democrats in that contest very quickly saying that they support the impeachment proceedings and all that. But oh. you're right. And there's a, there's already... Um, you know, there's already signs of a pushback. You had several dozen protesters just the other day rally outside Lucy McBath's office trying to make clear that, yes, there are many people in the district that oppose impeachment. So it's going to be a, a polarizing yeah, galvanization. I, Jim, I guess I'm wrong. I guess it is going to come into play in more races than I was thinking. I, I would say those two, those yeah. two on, 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 yeah. on the congressional okay. level. And, 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 and what's interesting is because it has become coming in play, uh, it looks like uh, Michael Bloomberg is going to be spending a whole lot of money in the sixth again. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's uh, he's he's already pledged what five million dollars, I think, to 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 Democrats in these swing districts, and I'm sure. McBath will be one of them. And yeah. his group, Every Town for Gun Safety, was the biggest spender yeah. in the 2018 race, spending, I think, almost $4 million yeah. for to support former employee Lucy McBath. All right. Got to get to the top story because we're running out of time. And I think you, you all tell me, I think there's fairly general agreement because it relates to, again, Governor Kemp's first year and how he's putting a stamp on the state and also an important Senate race coming up. Uh, we said it earlier, Governor Kemp says Kelly Leffler is going to the Senate in Johnny Isaacson's seat. Greg, you owned that 
that story, and it really is a hugely important story this year. Not the least of reasons is, with Isaacson's resignation, we have two U.S. Senate seats on the ballot in 2020. Yeah, 2020 is going to be fun. And to me, Kelly Leffler is the most fascinating politician in Georgia because she's the least well-known. Yeah. It's not like he picked Doug Collins, who was a tried-and-true conservative who, who we knew and who the grassroots activists knew and who elected officials knew. Kelly Leffler is, you know, aside from being a Republican megadonor, was not well-known in and even, you know, the most hardcore conservative circles. And so getting to know her and, and her policies and her stances and her votes, I mean, Tia's going to have her hands full just following uh, Kelly Leffler around, let alone the rest of the delegation, getting to know who she is as a politician, who she is as a person. Yeah, and uh, and, and and just to that point, I mean, she is she is the, the head of a, a Bitcoin operation uh, and co-owner of the uh, WNBA team, the Atlanta Dream, which I find very interesting because she's taking some positions that are going to make her very unpopular among women voters as a whole, and and I would I would think African Americans as well. Uh, Tia, one of the things, oh, go ahead, you weigh in first, and well, then I'll ask you. <laughs> I was going to just mention that it's going to be so interesting, you know, we keep talking about the calculus of wanting to expand the base for the Republican Party and, and, and get those those women mothers in suburban Atlanta back into the fold voting Democrat. Can Kelly Leffler do it if she's, you know, positions herself as this very conservative, pro-abortion, anti-impeachment, pro-gun um, Republican? I, I don't know if that will resonate in the Atlanta suburbs the way um, Governor Kemp and other Republican leaders want her to. Yeah. And she has to play kind of she has to thread a a needle right now, because on the one hand, she has to she has to build trust among conservative activists and the kinds of people who really put their blood, sweat and tears into a lot of these races and who really wanted Doug Collins to be the appointee to the seat. On the other hand, exactly. She has to appeal to those suburban women who are really not big fans of Trump. And how do you do that when you're also a multimillionaire? I think Tia, of all of us, is going to have the most interesting seat in the in the Kelly Leffler, uh, you know, bleachers, because Kelly Leffler has they've chosen they don't want to talk to any of us here in the Georgia media at this point. That, that's fine. I mean, they're giving her a chance to get up to speed. I give them that. Is it but, fine, though? Is I, it I really? Well, put it, I don't know if it is or not, but I do know this, Tia. You're going to be among those reporters chasing her down the halls of the Capitol, and she's going to have a harder time avoiding everybody when she's up there in that fishbowl. Yeah, that's true. She she won't be able – I mean, we can't make her answer questions, but I – um she won't be able to avoid me in certain settings the way, you know, right now she can. I'm sure her mansion is gated and, and everything else, you know. So, you know, in a way, there will be more access. Um, and I'm sure she's spending her time getting ready for what, that. What more important than whether there will be more access or not, right now when she doesn't chooses not to do interviews with any of you at the AJC, come in to do Political Rewind because we haven't invited her to, it's all very quiet. But it's different when the cameras are following her down the hall and document whether she is responding or not to the questions reporters are asking. And there's right? quite a juxtaposition between that and one of her top 
potential rivals with Doug Collins. And remember, all this, she's in this tricky balancing act because she has to say, I mean, she's, she's coming out so pro-Trump and pro-Wall and anti-legal immigration and you name it, because she also, there's also the specter of a Doug Collins potential challenge. Right. And Doug Collins is one of the most accessible people on Capitol Hill, always in front of the cameras. Real, you got the last uh, word. Okay, one thing we need to focus on is these are the last two days of U.S. Senator Johnny Isaacson's political career. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, 40 years in, in public service. He's the only only, only uh, Republican who has served in the state House, state Senate, uh, U.S. House, and the U.S. Senate. He's been a remarkable figure in public life in Georgia. And I, you, every now and then you get to cover people who you, regardless of whether you agree with all of their politics, you can admire as, uh, as human beings who and the way they handle themselves. And the mantra for him and his team has always been, you know, there are two people in this world, friends and future friends. Yeah. And that's how he kind of translated when he, when he was looking at things like constituent services, when he was negotiating with Democrats and Republicans. That's how he approached everything. Thank you for putting that in there, Jim. That's important. That's all we have time for uh, today with this great panel from the AJC. I have enough time to tell you that uh, this is our. This is it for uh, us in uh, 2019. We're going to be showing. We're going to have some older shows that we're going to bring back. Right, Tom Faust in the next week. But the next time we're live is going to be on uh, Monday, January 6th, and that's when we start doing this show five days a week. I'm working on getting in shape over the holiday. Take care. Have a great New Year's, everybody. Bye bye. 